On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. The town may be kind of small, but these folks have big smiles and big hearts. And they know what it is to have simple fun down our way. For old-fashioned singing and homey gatherings make living mighty pleasant. My festival days have uh, gone to the wayside with kids. Yeah, festivals are tough. I'm, I'm with you. I did. I was still a kid. I was in uh, early 20s, and I did the first few, first three Lollapaloozas and the first three or four warp Tours. But at that age, you could do that. There's no, no shot I could do that now. I did Bonnaroo five years in a row. The last year I stopped is when I got married. I did Bonnaroo this year, man. It was hard this year. Yeah, it was hot as hell. I would imagine. Tex- uh, Tennessee in the middle of the summer. and Yeah, it was like, a, I think the real fill was like 107 or something during the day. And you got like 57% humidity or something crazy. It was awful. And you paid for that. I was, well, actually, I actually left camping and went and got a hotel because it was just so stupid hot. I was like, I can't do this, man. I'm too old for this. Dave Rolling. Welcome to Abandoned Albums, the documentary podcast where we take a closer look at some albums that may have been forgotten about over time, and some albums you might not even know existed. I'm your host, Keith R. Higgins, and riding shotgun with me, white-knuckling the Rand McNally, is Rob Janicki. Hey, Rob. Hey, Keith. How are you? I'm okay, Rob. I'm okay. Just trying to get through another hot August night. Introducing the Titty Bear. The Titty Bear snaps onto your shoulder strap and moves up and down. I really enjoy traveling again. Call and order your Titty Bear right now. We begin Season 3 of Abandoned Albums with our inaugural music podcast forum. So joining Rob and I are Lance from yesterday's concert podcast, Steve Epley from the Music Rewind podcast, and Steve Jurgensmeyer from the All Music Books podcast. The five of us got together to talk about all things podcasty and musicy, and that's exactly what we did. So, welcome to season three of Abandoned Albums. Thank you guys for joining. Really appreciate it. Isn't Davos coming up soon or something? I think that's what we should consider this the Davos of music podcasting. I like it. We have two Steves with us we have Steve J and Steve E. So that's how I'll refer to you guys. Lance will be Lance, obviously, and Keith and Rob. What, what would you say you do here? The Abandoned Album's title basically means, it doesn't mean it's a bad album. It doesn't mean it's an album that, um, you know, uh, doesn't deserve recognition, but it's kind of the opposite. It's an album that Keith and I both like. We think it's good, but for whatever reason, the artists that created it, didn't get a push. If you dive deep and people like us do into an artist's career, you don't always just love the popular records. You know, you like the ones that, you know, might be a little bit sort of um, forgotten and the artists love them too. So we get a chance to talk about them. They get a chance to kind of relive this record that they had higher hopes for. And the goal is to maybe get more people to hear it. We want to shine a light on some of these records that we think are really, really good and just didn't get a chance. We usually end each episode with, you know, where they're at now, what we can look forward to. And um, it kind of gives them an excuse to now talk about it's not just the past. We don't want it to be total nostalgia. We want to give them an opportunity to talk about what they're doing now. So, yeah. Lance. Yesterday's concert was a project about four years in the making before it saw the light of day. I've been to just over, I broke 800 concerts uh, this summer. I'm at 33 years old. My first concert was my sophomore year of high school, uh, pretty much like everybody. So uh, I just have these collection of stories from all the concerts that I've been to. I have a pretty broad range of taste, Uh, you know, Paul McCartney, Taylor Swift, uh, Casey Musgraves. I'm kind of all over the place. Grateful Dead, Love the Dead, Love Fish. Um, but so, uh, I, I just had these stories and I would tell people these stories about going to concerts and, you know, traveling till four in the morning to get to a concert, to get home or whatever. Uh, and somebody said, you should write a book. And so I started writing a book and I have no cred to get a book published. So 
I turned to podcasting uh, to build some credibility to one day hopefully get these stories published into kind of a short storybook or something of that nature. But I try to bring the concert to life. I mean, it's fun for me to retell the stories, but it's ultimately about music fans connecting with other music fans to hear stories that resonate with them about the first time they saw their favorite band or a time they got in trouble or got arrested after a show or whatever. Between seasons, I do what I call our encore episodes, uh, which is where I interview interviewed Rob. He was a great. Uh, he was my first interview, actually. Uh, but I, I do musicians, music connoisseurs, um, just kind of general people, journalists, things like that, just to kind of keep engagement between seasons going. For sure. Great. Steve E. So Music Rewind is a show that kind of came out of the pandemic, had a lot of conversations with a lot of friends and family where we would just talk music. And it always came out that people have a special album to them, something that they return to over and over again. And I wanted to, to just record it. Uh, so I started bringing in guests and interviewing people and just asking them, what is that one special album that really resonates with you? And the whole goal of the show was really for the guests to tell their story about why that album is so special, how they discovered it, uh, the stories around it. And I've gotten a wide variety of, of origin stories, really. One was a, a, a fella's divorce album. That was the soundtrack of his divorce. Another guy, he discovered Band on the Run when he was seven years old, and it changed his life uh, on 8-track. <laughs> uh so all kinds of a variety uh, of genres and people from all walks of life. And then now I'm getting more musicians, up and coming musicians that are asking to be on the show. Uh, and at the end, I let them you know, pitch their music and, and I share as well. And they've seen a bit of a bump in uh, their downloads, which is nice. Uh, nice to spread it around. But overall, it's just about the stories of the guests, why those albums are special to them. And Steve J. You know, I did this book, um, a website called allmusicbooks.com, probably about 10 or 11 years ago now. Um, and it was between when I got laid off from Rounder Records and I was looking for work and it was a cold Boston winter. And, you know, I, I just read bios and autobios all the time. I just said, you know, I should just build a website where anybody can go and review a book. It's free. It's a community site. You can go and you can write your own review of anything. Uh, you can rate other people's reviews, you can rate reviewers, and you can read reviews, you know. And, you know, just in the course of time changing, all of a sudden, it, the, it's like we should do a podcast of that. No more reading and writing, right? So um, I have an engineer down the street who did live sound for, like, Melissa Etheridge and Joe Perry and Jay Giles and John Hyatt. And he's got a studio in his house. So I said, can you engineer this for me? Because I'm a techno idiot, you know. And so we did it. And then one thing I did notice, and, uh, you know, fewer people are reading books. So we recently started doing music documentaries as well. And I know a few directors that I started with who are friends of mine. Um, and so we try and expand that. It also makes it easier. I don't have to read, you know, 400 page books three times a month. I can watch an hour and a half doc, you know, <laughs> which is a hell of a lot easier. You know, that's pretty much what it is, you know. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity and is threatening to pervert an entire generation of our American children. We know that once a person is perverted, it is practically impossible for that person to adjust to normal attitudes. Let me ask you guys a question. Just, uh, I'm curious, um, how long are each of y'all's episodes? For, for abandoned albums, we try to keep it in that 35 to 45 uh, zone for ourselves for uh for for me they range between 45 minutes to to maybe an hour hour and a half my uh my scripted episodes the the meat potato show they're about 20 to 25 minutes that's about the same we started out because there are books and we started out probably an hour an hour and 15 
when we have guests on, right? And we're usually face to face like this, but you can pick up when people are registering more. Vaden had more of a connection with Rob. In addition, it's probably because Rob knew more of his stuff. So I just pulled back. I was pretty quiet on that episode. Same thing when we uh, interviewed Jimmy Ashurst. He and Rob just struck a chord. So I was like, all right, I'm backing off. And when you have two people, you know, you can, like he had said, sometimes people just kind of vibe with someone and that makes it easy. But also at the beginning, before it even starts, like when, when Steve J came on, he was the first one here. Keith and I were already in the middle of a conversation because we were here first, which we typically would be for when a guest is coming on. They show up, we're in the middle of some conversation. It's probably always about music. They hear something, they just dive right in. Oh, I know that record. Or I saw, you know, so it's almost as if there's no official start because we're already talking and that's kind of laid the groundwork, you know? So it's easy, I think, when there's two people. When it's just one of you guys and you're doing it by yourselves, I, I think it's probably you know, difficult to get that done because there's nobody else. You can't, you know, you're not going to sit there and talk to yourself. I mean, you could, but. I have had guests where initial conversations, you know, they're like, I love this album. It's, it's amazing. And then you get them, you get them live, you get them on camera and like, it's my favorite. All right, let's, let's dive into that. Um, you know, so I, that's where questions do come in handy. I'll ask you, where did you discover it? Who turned you on to it? What what turns you on about? Is it the lyrics? Is it the music? It, was it the the situation when you first heard it? You know, I gotta sometimes ask. Sometimes that just comes out naturally in conversation. But there are times where I have to use those key questions to pull it out of them. And once they get going, and it and it it really kind of clicks in their memory of why that album is special to them, then then the conversation rolls. But I've had some struggles at the beginnings of some of my interviews. Yeah, I can bounce off of that. I had one. It was with a guy. Um, he was not giving me anything at the beginning. He was just very straightforward with all of his answers. And I got him. I think I got him talking about the dead, like seeing the dead for the first time. He started telling me a story about drugs or something being sold. And uh, that just really opened them up. And it was kind of a lesson for me. It was just like, find something that they're going to connect with. Find something that they value. And they really open up. And even at the end of the interview, he was like, I have got to go. I'm late for an, like another uh, meeting and you got me opened up and started talking. And I was like, well, that's fantastic. That's exactly what I want. Man. Well, it's nice to show that human side too. And I mean, I've started fooling around with a second person in the studio, mostly right. I think right now all for films and one of them is a documentary film director. You know, I thought it could get a different viewpoint, but then the other one, which is, I'll be honest, it's strategic, but she is a, a very good friend of mine, um, especially for films. And we were bouncing it around. And she said, one of my first concerts was Queen and Thin Lizzy in 1977, I think. And I always considered Thin Lizzy a male band. My wife hates them. If I put on, you know, Live and Dangerous, it's out the room, you know. And she was just, oh, I love them. And I was like, oh, okay. I think it would be really interesting to get a female's asking questions as well as just me, you know, and she's done it a lot. We did one with, um, Oh God, what's his name? Uh, Michael DeBar. You know, we did a bunch of them and it's, it's, it's very different. And, and I like it a lot, you know, at least with another person, like you were saying, you know, they're kind of interacting and, you know, we've worked on it where different models, but, you know, rather than me compiling the questions, we started to do it organically and it, it does have a better flow. Let's, because uh, we know Steve J's first concert was Thin Lizzy. Let's go around the room and see what everyone's first concert was. I used to say when I was a kid, before I grew up and was mature, that my first concert was the Black Sabbath and Blue Oyster Cult Tour of 1980. That was not my first concert. My first concert was John Denver. My mother took me to see John Denver when I was a kid. So I cop to that now. There's nothing hey, wrong with that. There ain't nothing wrong with that. No, not a not thing. Now. Yeah, but when you're in Dayton, Ohio, and you're 18 or 17, and you're smoking weed with your friends, that's not cool. <laughs> no, your friends just aren't cool. That's the problem. That's a fact. <laughs> Steve, we're just asking like what the first concert was, and I, I was just telling these guys that uh, I used to say my first concert was the Black Sabbath Loyster Cult Tour of 1980. That's a good one. It, yeah, but in reality, it was really John Denver the year before. That's a similar thing. My dad took me and my brother to Chicago 
1975, I think. And hey, I, wait, you just said your first concert was Thin Lizzy. Well, there, there's the same line you just did. I, <laughs> I hate Chicago. I hated Chicago when I was a kid. It was my brother's favorite band. That was the birthday present. So I got dragged along to that. Okay. But uh, Thin Lizzy and Queen was pretty close. I saw the, uh, saw the Eagles on the Hotel California, which was fine, except growing up in Florida, uh, Jimmy Buffett, I always call him Jimmy Buffet, he opened, and I fucking hate that guy. Even more. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm with you. There's some, there's some things that I just purge. You know? Well, actually, you know what it is? I don't hate Jimmy Buffett as much as I hate parrot heads. Yeah, true, true, true. If you if anybody shows up my door with a banana headdress and so on, it's just like locked. You know, you're not coming in. Stevie, uh, what was your first concert? My first concert was in '98. I was 18, and it was uh, Metallica. Nice. Uh, Northern Illinois at uh, Pecatonica Fairgrounds, and uh, Days of the New and Jerry Cantrell solo opened for them. Wow! And it, it was a fantastic concert. <laughs> the beer garden fence was non-existent during the opening acts. It was knocked down so they didn't care it was it was great how about you lance uh so i grew up in mississippi so it was only fitting that my first concert was leonard skinner and the almond brothers uh so i know there was i know there was concerts before that but that was the first one where i was like dad can i go to this concert and it was all the redneck hype that you would expect it to be there's a man wearing a confederate flag as a cape (laughs) And, you know, overalls, cowboy hat, you know, it was, it was very Mississippi in every way possible. And it was fantastic. I had tickets for that show when their plane went down. It was like a week later. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Um, I should have kept the tickets. They'd be worth something now. Yeah, really. And Roberto. I'm going to be a pain in the ass with this one. I don't know the answer because in, in 1985, I was 12 and I know I saw Iron Maiden, Duran Duran, and Prince, all in that same year, and I have no idea which one was first. <laughs> Go and they all, I, I, I want to say it was Iron Maiden, but if I, if I dare look it up, I remember where I saw them. So it was in Nassau Coliseum in New York in Long Island. So I can probably figure it out by looking them up, but I don't remember. But it was one of those three, which is crazy because they're all insanely different and I was 12, so what did I know? I'm having chest pain. I've fallen, and I can't get up. We're sending help immediately, Mrs. Fletcher. See? Protect yourself with life call, and you're never alone. I just I guess I just realized I'm a fuck of a lot older than you guys. I think you and me, Steve. <laughs> Holy shit. I'm, I'm yeah. right behind you. Yeah. But... I'm only you know. 15, so I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, when I was one or two, uh, I was taken to a Dr. Hook concert, so oh, I don't no. count that one. <laughs> you were there. It counts. There was um, a few years ago, I went to go see Bob Seeger in Los Angeles when I was out there. And at the time, he was 70. I remember living... I think we're in Dayton, Ohio, and my parents were going to see Frank Sinatra, and I remember them telling me that he was 70. So I turned to my girlfriend at the time. I'm like, are we seeing our Frank Sinatra? Because he's 70, and he's still kicking ass, and I'm sure Frank Sinatra was great too, but I was like, wow, fuck, 70. I did an entire episode on like a really similar theme because it was about me going to see ZZ Top. And for... I mean, for like the majority of my life, I have been a classic rock only fan. I mean, that's all I listened to until about 2017. And it was when I went to see ZZ Top. And as I was leaving, I noticed I'm like, I'm the youngest dude in here by about 30 to 40 years. And I mean, and like I'm not knocking anybody that was there, but I was like, you know, for a lot of people, this was their first concert and maybe their last concert. Like, not to be like cynical. <laughs> I mean, but really and truly. Jesus. I mean, I mean, it was COVID was on the horizon, like, you know, things happen. And uh, but so I started like thinking, I'm like, well, who am I going to be seeing when I'm their age? Like, who's going to be my last concert? And I'm like, the Rolling Stones. I mean, yeah, they're <laughs> still going to be going, <laughs> you know, but, that you know, so that, I mean, that's something I think about a lot is like, you know, so that was one of the things that really pushed me to start paying more attention to like modern music was like, you know, there's still a lot of good stuff being made. And I'm just, you know, ignoring it because I'm stuck up my own butt or something. But like. You know, that, that's something I think about a lot. 
You know, to touch on one of your points, and we were talking about kids. I don't know if everyone's got kids, but when we had our first, who's 25 now, and we knew our lives were going to be changed forever. And so that summer, my wife was pregnant. We went and we saw James Brown, different shows, James Brown, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles. We just like did the bucket list of anyone because I knew with a kid, like you got to be picky and choosy, you know, but there were all these ones. And uh, I, I got to say, I'd take Ray Charles if I had to go back, but it was a fun summer. That's for sure. My wife and I have like a little mini legends list that, you know, we, we pick and choose now because we'll, our, our kids are small. Uh, recently we, we saw Paul McCartney. We saw Elton John, fantastic shows. Um, the uh, Bob Dylan, not a fantastic show, but we saw. So check off the list. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was, I saw Elton John on this, you know, whatever the uh, one of his farewell tours. Yeah, this this goodbye Yellow Brick Road endless tour. I love Elton John, absolutely love him. I think he's just fucking great. And I knew he was he's not going to be around forever. So I was like, all right, I want to do it. I went to go see it, and um, I made the mistake of checking set list the set list setlist dot com before I went to go see the show just to see what I could expect. And I'm like, oh, he fucking opens with Benny and the Jets. What a fucking great way. It was the same set, right. and I was, I, and I can't blame him because he's like 108 years old, and he's been his band members are like 110. He's been playing with them since, you know, the the, the late 60s. So peak Elton John for me would have been like that coked out 74, 75 era, hmm. you know, when he was wearing the chicken duck suit or whatever the <laughs> fuck that was. That would have been the great Elton John. But I'm still happy I got to see him. It was a great show. Billy Joel, who I haven't had the chance to see. Yeah, we've had our, the concert canceled on us several times, but uh, he he posts his set lists uh, and they're different all the time. He changes them up. That may, maybe that's why he and Elton don't tour anymore. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> but Lance, to your point about people dying in ZZ Top, I know there's a joke in there about Dusty Hill, and I'm not going to make it because that would be in poor taste. I feel like that's low hanging fruit at this point. Like we got to <laughs> we got to hold ourselves to a higher. You know, like, come on, man, try harder. You can do better. I, I, I think you just kind of did, Keith. So. I know I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is one band that I do want to see desperately. You've never seen ZZ Top? I have not. No. I've seen them three or four times now. And it's, I mean, it's like the shows keep getting shorter. Every time I've seen them, the show's been a little bit shorter than the year before. But I mean, it's still, I mean, it's still, they do all the cheesy dances. I mean, it meets all the things that, I mean, they look the exact same as they did in the 80s. So, I mean, you just, you know, you just picture a hot broad sitting next to you instead of this 80-year-old guy with a walker, and, you know, you're back in the 80s. I never saw Skinner either. I mean, technically, I didn't either, because it was like, what, one original member at that point? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I really and truly, I didn't see Skinner either. I saw a cover band open yeah. for the Allman Brothers, but, you know, semantics. But, but at least it was a Van Zandt, at least front in the band. Yes. Yeah. Now, Lance, were you at Bonnaroo when uh, the Beach Boys played there? Uh, no, this was my first, this year was my first year to go, but I have seen the beach boys. I saw them in 2005, six. This would, Actually, have, a couple, this would have been a couple years after that. And it was, it was amazing. Just, you know, say another one off the legends list for me. Uh, but it was largely a beach boys cover band in the background, yeah. fantastic band. And then several original members, Brian Wilson looking terrified, but it was all worth it, you know, to hear him, hear him sing and, and it was it was a great concert, but really heavy on the backup band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So funny story about seeing the Beach Boys. I got to share this one. Uh, so I went with a couple of friends and we all knew it like the ZZ Top show. We knew it was going to be a bunch of older people in attendance. And we were joking about how, you know, people just don't throw their bras on stage like they used to back in the 70s. So uh, I stopped by the Walmart on the way in and bought an oversized, very oh, grandma looking brassiere. And I stuffed it in my pocket and I was going to throw it on stage and I didn't make it through security. She did the pat down on me and she found it and she, she's like, sort of step aside. She pulled it out of my pocket. It was like, what is this? And I was like, ah, I can, I just go to the show now. And so she oh. let me through, but like, yeah, it, it fell, it really fell apart on me, but that was a, that was a proud moment for my parents to know their son was having a bra pulled out of his pocket at a beach boys concert. I had a so. funny villain story that's age appropriate. I mean, I saw him, I, came to Boston to go to school and 
he played at a really small theater on my 18th birthday and I wanted to go. It sold out. Nobody else wanted to go. So I scalped a ticket and I was late and I walked into the second song and it was uh, like Rolling Stone. And I was like, ah, you know, but I've always followed him, seen him many, many times, but we went to a recent show probably uh, a while back now. I mean, Mark Knopfler might've been in the band playing guitar, but there's this really old couple that sat down next to me and, you know, we just started talking, you know, and, so you're a big Dylan fan? Oh, yes. I mean, those first two or three records. And, you know, now what's happened to his voice? I go, oh, have you heard any of the new stuff? They're like, no, no, we're just here to hear the old stuff. I go, oh, you're in for, you're in for a treat. I think they made it three songs and they split, you know, because, I mean, his voice is definitely different. You got to be ready for it. He doesn't play the same uh, versions of the old songs and here they were ready to hear you know another side of bob dylan and it's like that's not gonna happen you know that that was my experience when he played here in atlanta uh the verizon amphitheater he just kind of sat there and mumbled for two hours and uh played all of his new stuff you know you you could literally hear people yelling play maggie's farm you know, but it, he just the, the crowd didn't exist to him he just played his new stuff and then walked off stage. How do you guys feel about that? On the one hand, I applaud the artistry, but at the same time, throw people a bone. I know? say mix it up. I mean, yeah. like Sp Springsteen, he'll do a, a full hour of new stuff, whether you like it or not. But then the second half of his show is like, it's 1985. Yeah. Uh, with the same energy. You, know, he, he, you get winded just watching that guy. But Lance, what do you think about people just uh, dicking off and not, not, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard. I feel, I feel, I genuinely feel for the artist in that situation because, I mean, if like, I think Neil Young's the first guy that comes to mind for this. I remember waiting. He was playing at a festival here in town, and I waited probably six hours to be down front for him. He's one of my favorites. Uh, and I, he had just come out with one of his, it was like the Monsanto album or one of those just very, you know, meh albums. Uh, but I, I remember having a conversation with some people that had seen him before, and I was just like, gosh, I hope he doesn't play the new stuff. And then he came out and opened with a 40-minute Down by the River, which was the greatest thing in the world as a Jam fan and a Neil fan. Like, it was amazing. And Lucas Nelson was with them, so it was incredible. But, I mean, you know, the, the, the battle with me was like, you know, he's been playing that song for 30, 40 years now. He has to hate it. I mean, like, I can't blame him for not wanting to play it or to play it for 40 minutes to make it interesting. But at the same time, I paid to see him and I want to hear, you know, you know, the needle and the damage done. Like, I, you know, it's just it's a really tough thing. And I feel for him when they've been in their career that long. And, you know, the Stones go out and do the greatest hits every single night. And, you know, they're surely just moving through the motions at this point. They can't be enjoying it. And, you know, would you rather see them? play all the hits or would you rather see him enjoy it? And it's, it's a hard one. I don't think there's any definitive answer to it. Oh. Cause I mean, even like I saw Bon Jovi, one of the worst shows I've ever seen in my life. Really? And he, oh, it was really? awful. It was I terrible. find that hard to believe. It was so bad. And like, and I mean, I only paid 20 bucks. So, you know, I, you know, it wasn't that bad of a deal, but like, I mean, he played, I like six or seven songs off his new album back to back to back. And it completely killed the crowd. I mean, like there was women next to me too, like uh, like soccer moms, definitely on like a mommy night out. They were wine drunk, and they came in, and like I was pretty sure they were going to take their top off when they came in. And about midway through the show, I heard them talking about bath towels. They were talking about going to Target and buying bath towels because <laughs> they were so bored. And I was just like, "Dude, John, what are you doing? You have lost these women were going to have sex with you after the show, and now they're going to you know buy towels for their children." how terrible of a show can you make? So, I mean, it's hard, man. I, you know, I don't know. It, it's, there's no easy answer. To, to tack on that. So I, I mentioned my first concert was Metallica in 98 and they came out on stage and they said, and this was right when load and reload came out. They said, we're, we're going to play nothing but old shit. And the crowd went nuts. And then they did, they opened with master and just, it was, it was a fantastic show. I saw them uh, less than a year later in Hawaii and it was one of the worst concerts I've ever been to. It, it was, I mean, bands sometimes go to Hawaii. They do a half-ass show to pay for their vacation, and then they go to the beach. And uh, I was stationed out there for several years. And it, it was just that people were sitting at a Metallica concert. It was just boring, no pyro. And I, I don't know, it was, it was just such a 
I mean, less than a year later, it was just weird because all they played was load and reload out in Hawaii. See, for me, I I think it depends on the band and their fan base. Makes a big difference because if you're a band that is known for maybe a handful of songs and everybody, for the most part, loves all the hits and that's what you typically get, okay. But my, I would say the band that does it the best as far as mixing things up and keeping it fresh is Pearl Jam. I've seen them 31 times. I, that's insane, I know, but their their set list changes dramatically every night. They may play four to seven songs the same. That's it. Now they have a really deep catalog, and their fans want to hear B sides. They want to hear things, you know. So and they know that. So there's this relationship, and they honor that. But you, you're still going to get alive. You're going to get even flow. You're going to get. They don't even play Jeremy at every show, but you're going to get songs that everybody knows. But most of the people who go to those shows are diehard fans and they want that stuff. But if you go and see some, I don't know, maybe some hair metal band, you know, see Poison or something like that, you're going to get eight to 12 hits that everyone knows and you're incredibly happy that you got them. I'm not a huge Poison fan. I think they write catchy no. tunes. I read the book, uh, Nothing But a Good Time. It's like an oral history of hair metal on the Sunset Strip. It's actually not a bad book, but almost universally, everybody in that book says how hard Poison worked. They were a hardworking band. So when Robin, you talk about them coming out and playing like eight hits or whatever, I think they are gleefully happy to come out and fucking play the piss out of those songs. Because they know the seven, ten, twelve thousand people that are there are there to hear those songs. I'm uh, actually stunned they had eight hits. I'll be honest with you. I oh, can, yeah. maybe two. I don't know. Oh no, and, and they're I, they're catchy. I mean, <laughs> Unskinny Bop. No, never even heard of that song. <laughs> See, oh. I'm I'm not a fan of theirs, but they're one of those bands that. And Steve, you, I, I think this may happen if you ever do it. If you listen to more of their songs, and again, I'm not, I, I don't own a single Poison record, but you'll find out that you know more of their material than you think. Because exactly what I'm afraid of. Out of all the hair metal bands, they they are one that I, you know, don't necessarily turn off if it comes on the radio. I know they they got some catchy ones. I Fallen Angel, great great tune, great fucking song. Yeah. Every rose has its thorn. That's that's one of the two I know. I want to ask a follow up question to the Steves. You have somebody like Bob Dylan. So, Steve J, you're a Bob Dylan expert. CV, you're more new to it. So, but I mean, like, so you've seen him enough. But his new album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, was very well received. Very well received in most critical corners by most fans. I loved it. I thought it was a really great album. And when I went to see him, I expected the new song and I loved it. I was happy to hear those songs because I loved the album. But, you know, like you were saying, Steve, like people wanted to hear the first three albums and things like that. So what's the balance there when you have this really great renowned new album for an artist that's been at it for 60, 70 years? Personally, I think a lot of the problems that we had though, was that the, the concert quality was not there. He was not performing at, you know, peak Bob Dylan, which is, you know, just unfortunate. He's, he's older. 
Uh, when I said he sat up there and mumbled for two hours, it's, we didn't know when one song ended and then another one began. It was throughout the entire crowd. You just saw phone lights. People were on their phones flicking away. I mean, it was, it was kind of sad. So maybe if he was, if the audio production and the, the vocals were the same as the studio album, may, maybe they were, it would have been a little better, but it just didn't keep anyone's interest. I think I think my perspective on him is that I mean I've followed him a lot and most of his newer records I think are pretty good. I mean the guy's fucking 80 years old. And I, I mean I saw Sinatra when I saw him would have been like 83 and we sat outside at one of these outdoor venues. I could hear that he was reading off a teleprompter. So there you know it gets to be I give him credit. I mean, I've definitely seen some shows where I'm like, meh, you know, and then I've seen some that just blew me away. Um, he's one of the few, I think, that I'll, me personally, I'll cut the slack to. That doesn't mean I'd necessarily go see him a lot anymore. Um, he's got a kick-ass band behind him, too, which I'm surprised to hear. Um, and he's had that band for a while. But, um, you know, I think it all depends on expectations, too. And, and like, if you've now that you've seen him there, that's what you're going to get every time. I mean, you're never going to get the whole list of hits. And I don't even know if in 1980 when I saw him, I got that because that was the Saved Tour, which is an underrated record. Um, but, um, you know, he was playing all of the, the Christian music, you know, with a couple of hits, you know. So he's one of the few, you know. Um, Pearl Jam I've never seen, and I do respect the shit out of them. But um, I'm a little older than that, so I miss them. But. Well, to, to add to that, so I, I saw Tom Petty. Uh, uh, less than a year before he died. And uh, it was just a, a, on a whim. Some friends of ours said, hey, we got some extra tickets to Tom Petty. You want to go? Hell yeah. Let's go. Uh, so we did. And it was one of the best shows I've seen in Atlanta. And it was a, a mix mash of uh, stuff I'd never heard from him. The classics you always hear from Tom Petty. Several covers. And not to mention a 20-minute version of it's uh, It's Good to Be King. I mean, one of the best concerts I've ever seen I was floored when he died. I mean, that just blew me away as I could just saw him. Uh, but I mean, he even played some Wilbury's tunes. It was great. Yeah. I saw him three weeks before he died. I took my daughter and I'd taken her a year and a half before at Fenway park, which was unbelievable and turned her in, into a fan. And, uh, that was a tough one, you know, especially you get your kids there, you know, and off of the, what is it? Not the backstreet boys. What's the new one? with Harry, whatever, Harry Styles. And, uh, you know, she was like, you know, uh, like that song Walls, which is a very much a B-side, but one of his great, great, great tunes. And his covers are always brilliant, you know. And, uh, you know, he he was amazing, you know. Um, I first saw him on the Damn the Torpedoes tour because he was a Florida kid, but... Um you don't have to be a pro, just strap them on and go, go, go. More fun than socks on a polished wood floor, even your dog can fun slide. Somebody sent me an article about, um, uh, and I, I agree with them, and Rikudis was the first CD-only company, but the, the rise in CDs now, you know, and everybody thought that was a done thing. And uh, it's a real, I'll, I'll send it to everybody who wants it. It's, it's a really, really yeah. good article. And, you know, I'm a big CD fan because I had kids. And when I had kids young, I was like, I'm, if I have to turn the music over every 15 minutes while I'm feeding my three-year-old, I'm never going to listen to music. And then the CD comes along and it's 72, 72 minutes. I'm like, perfect. You know, so the only thing, I, the only thing I'll push back on that a little bit, because this, the CD does uh, allow for 72 minutes, but these fucking artists who felt compelled to fill it, you know, you get some of these guys, it's like, Jesus Christ, this is a shit song. Right. If, right. if we were still on vinyl, this wouldn't be on the record, you know? Uh, re I recently did. I I'd, uh, I was the moderator for a Van Halen debate, Roth versus Hagar, which uh, I'm going to actually post on mine for 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 his show. The the same guy that did our uh, Flaming Lips episode for uh, Soft Bulletin. Uh, so he he held this debate, and I won't give you the outcome of who won. I was just the moderator, but it's an entertaining hour. It's funny you mentioned that Stevie because I honestly I'm like all right. I know we're winding down on time. I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to ask one final question. And I shit you not. You all know this ahead of time. But the question was going to be Roth or Hagar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
down Bentley one Gonna bite your ass By the way, it's got to be David Lee Roth. Steve J, we got one vote for David Lee. Steve E. Uh, I got to say, Hagar, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Roth is is, a fa- is fantastic, uh, but I enjoy the the elevated musicianship of Van Halen after. Okay. Lance? As far as I'm concerned, Van Halen ended in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Rob? Yeah, I'm a I'm a Dave guy too. I do I like Steve uh, E's answer because the musicianship changed, the songs changed, and that's cool. But I think songs, just those early songs by themselves, they're, they're you can't beat those. Yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go Roth on that. Although, much like Rob and Stevie, I do like I like Sammy Hagar a lot. Thought it was an interesting choice when he fronted Van Halen. Sammy can sing. David Lee Roth probably hasn't been able to sing since like 1974, but he was a great <laughs> fucking front man. You know, you didn't go to hear the fucking pipes. And, and having never seen them live, I mm. admit it to me, it's, it's, it's strictly just listening to the albums and all those, you know, not all those early albums, but uh, I mean, Van Halen was it 1978 Van Halen one. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, genre changing as far as uh, classic rock and mm-hmm. guitar rock yeah. and, but to me, uh, for unlawful carnal knowledge, I love that mm-hmm. album. Yep. I do. I think right now is um, an amazing song. And anytime I hear Van Halen, it's the first song that pops into my head. Do yourself a favor and pull up the video for Unchained. It's a live clip from Oakland, and like that must have been 1980. It's it's how they opened the show, and it's it's insane. So a spoiler, a spoiler alert from the old man in the group. Uh, I saw that Van Halen first album tour when they were the opening act for Black Sabbath with Ozzy and they blew Black Sabbath off the stage. I mean, they were so, so, so good. And then of course, I think uh, Tony Iommi blew out an amp like in the first song. So there's Ozzy for a half an hour, you know, with his peace sign and chanting around the stage. <laughs> uh, but they, they were really, really good. My third episode was Van Halen one by mm-hmm. Van Halen super fan who is diehard David Lee Roth. Uh, Great guy, but we we talked about that how they showed up Black Sabbath and and then there's several festivals and they mentioned one specific that uh, people wouldn't go on before them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it was, was the oh okay yeah yeah I don't know who that was I was thinking of something else uh, us festival or uh, oh no the us festival is great footage because they were fucking drunk. <laughs> <laughs> They're it's horrible. David Lee Roth is so drunk. Wow, but. You can actually pull in calling up ZZ Top. You can pull up some some footage from them when they were in South America, and they do a a cover of was it Beer Drinkers Hellraisers live, and it's fucking phenomenal. They weren't drunk, and they were firing on all cylinders. And Steve J. Noel Monk's book is fantastic. If you guys haven't read it, that's a great book. Great book. It, you know, I will say, for me, Sammy Hagar, I was a huge fan in high school because of the Montrose record. Mm-hmm. You know that. That record is fucking great. That's a great record. Yeah, and I could never get past that. You know, it was always like a letdown that that he went to Van Halen. But that record, boy, that was played a lot. And they were completely two different bands. They they're not the Absolutely. same band. They're just not. And and I I remember reading an article. Oh, was it an article or an interview? I don't remember. But Eddie Van Halen, you know, and there's no love lost between them. Everyone knows that. But he he said, you know, like. Roth just didn't like rock music. He wasn't a rock music fan at all. 
Like this was hard. He he just was he was he was nuts, but he just didn't like that kind of music. So they couldn't do. There were so many things they couldn't do, and he said it was really frustrating to get him to do anything that they really wanted. And then with Sammy, it was just like you said, Keith. This guy is a he's a lifer. He's a rock lifer, and they changed everything. But again, to me, music is always about the songs. And if if you just listen to the songs, those early songs are just. I mean, they're as classic as it gets. There's another really good early book. I can't think of the guy's name. I interviewed him. Um, I think it's on one of my podcasts, but it ends when the first album is released. And it, they had such a fascinating high school history playing these like fields in, in Los Angeles, you know, like at beer parties and house parties. And they were so young. And so like just that rise was incredible. It was such a great story. Really cool. Uh, you know, and speaking of books, even the Sammy Hagar autobiography is quite good. I mean, I mean, if you like that sort of shit, you, it's not, it's not fucking Tolstoy. You rip right through it, but they're great stories, and they're stories we all know up front, and then you get the background to it. Just adds a little bit of texture and color to the stories. You, you got to give at least a shout out to Gary Sharon thrown into an impossible situation. <laughs> That's for sure. that, yeah. It was lose lose for Gary, no matter what he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really was. Did you guys? There's a brief documentary about the guy who was hired for like a day and a half. Have you heard this story? To be the producer of that album? No, he was the singer. He was hired to be the singer of Van Halen oh. in between Sammy Hagar and Gary Sharon. He got the job offer. You know, they flew him out there. He's saying, I'll, "I'll see if I can dig it up." There's like a 15 or 16 minute documentary about his experience. In that it was, it came, he finally came out with it after Eddie died. You know, he kept it under wraps for out of respect for everybody, but he got the job offer. And then because the guys from Extreme and Eddie shared a, and Van Halen shared a manager, that's the only reason Gary Sharon got it. Poor Gary. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. He was thrown into an impossible situation. You know, yeah. I might have fared better than Gary Sharon. He gave he gave it his best shot because he's he a great did. singer in his own right. He just they wanted him to sound too much like both Roth and Hager at the same time. Yeah. All right, well, guys, we are at time. I thank you so much. This was fun. I enjoyed it. it was great. I appreciate the time. A lot of fun. Um, cool. I'll get this done and get it out. Thanks for putting this together. This was fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank nice you, guys, you guys for coming on. Yeah, really. All right. See you soon. Good night. Many thanks to Steve J of the All Music Books podcast, Lance from Yesterday's Concert podcast, and Steve E from the Music Rewind podcast. Be sure to check out their podcasts. You can get them wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you like us, please be sure to rate us. And if you like us even more, hit that little follow button and follow us. It really helps the crazy algorithms of the internets. Thank you very much. Abandoned Albums was recorded at Thunder Love Studios. Produced and written by Keith R. Higgins and Rob Janicki. Engineered and mixed by Steve Beasley. Edited by A.J. Royce. Original music by Mike Pellegrino. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. At Twitter, we are at Abandoned Albums. And on Instagram, we are at Abandoned underscore Albums. Many thanks to Bailey Leaf, Rob Janicki, S.W. Loudon, Michael Janicki, Steve Beasley, Mike Pellegrino, Therina Bella, Peyton Janicki, and of course... Our executive producer. This is Thunderwolf. And now, until we meet again next time, I remain as always obediently yours. Abandoned Albums is a production of Paw Print Media. Bombadida, 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 the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather
the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.